Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 19. This week, we talk with Liam Cavanaugh about the new Azure Search Service, using GUI to turn your console applications into Windows applications, Azure SQL Database goes GA, and how the Napa earthquake affected Bay Area sleepers. Hey, Carl, it's another week. What's going on? Not too much. It's uh, actually a little bit warmer this week over here. Yeah, that's good. My pool is uh, is pretty cold. We're getting finally getting some sun around here. I think uh, actually Liam's out there in in Redmond and he stole our weather. Uh, it's been beautiful here. <laughs> it's been perfect out there. So on today's show, we have Liam Cavanaugh. He's senior program manager at Microsoft. And most recently, he's been working on the new Azure search service. How's it going, Liam? Oh, really good. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason and Carl. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. And we're going to be talking to you in just a little bit about the Azure search service. Sounds great. Uh, so let's just jump into the news. So the first thing, this is actually, uh, it's not really timely, but I think it's still interesting. Uh, C sharp, the C plus or the, um, the plus equals operator is not merely not guaranteed to be atomic. It is guaranteed not to be atomic. Did you take a look at this one, Carl? I did, but I'm not sure if I really understood this one like you did. I, I had to read it over and over again. I'm, you know, I'm not a smart man, but uh, <laughs> I went through and, and at first I thought they were talking about uh, uh, multi-threading and, and using this operator. Cause I remember back in my C++ days, you had to worry about that because whenever you take, if you take, this was actually the, the plus equals, but I know if you do like a, a plus plus or you do plus plus in a variable name, you know, that's like two different, essentially two different operations. And here, so it's doing a, a plus equal. So if you have a, a string and you do plus equals on another string, that's actually, people think that that's like one atomic operation. And for 99.9% .9 of things that you would, normal code that you would write, that's definitely the case. Um, and if you get into some multi-threading uh, issues, you can have a variable get updated in, you know, in between those threads. But what was is super interesting about this is that you can actually have code that that works completely different than what it looks like, even if it's not multi-threaded. I know we're starting off the show kind of with, with a deep thing here, but we'll have a we'll have a link in the show notes so you can actually take a look at the code. But there's a there's basically um, x plus equals and then it calls a function, and so it's basically trying to take the the return value of that function and increment x. But in that other function, it's also incrementing x. So it's basically you have a static variable that's accessed by a couple different things. And if you if you look at it, you will expect it to work one way and it does not work the way that you expect. So this is just kind of a gotcha to look out for. So I just thought it was kind of it's kind of interesting. It actually completely works the way that it's supposed to. It's within spec. It's within the evaluation order. So I recommend just taking a look at this. I, I thought it was interesting. There's a couple of these quirks in the in the .NET language. And by quirk, I mean, you know. It's totally legit. It's just that you can accidentally shoot yourself in the foot with it. So that's sort of the gist of that one. Um, this one's a little bit more interesting. Running Windows on the Intel Gal Galileo board. So there's actually a lot of things going on in this space. I don't know if either of you have been watching kind of the, the IoT space, but there's the, the Intel Galileo board, which is you know, sort of a low cost x86 board system on a chip type of thing. And uh, you've been able to buy these things for a while, actually, I think since before build. But now you can actually get um, uh, an addition of Windows that runs on this so that you can you can actually be running um, a stripped down version of Windows that lets you 
uh, run some code on it and access the GPIO ports and those types of things. So right now, you know, it's only C++ and it's, it's, this is, this is, I think we're just seeing sort of the tip of the iceberg as far as IOT and, um, you know, Windows is concerned. I think we're going to start to see a whole bunch more movement here. So this was just the beginning. So the news really is that there's now you can download the actual image and you can flash that device. So you could actually go on Amazon or Newegg or whatever and grab one of these boards and then flash it with the with the Windows firmware and then start writing code on this thing. So for anybody who wants to get a huge head start on this, this is how you can do it. And kind of to reiterate a little bit, um, before this week, if you had one of those boards that you did not get through the Microsoft program, mm-hmm. you actually couldn't put Windows on there because of the firmware being incompatible. Right. And now now they released the firmware, so you can do a firmware upgrade, and now you can get the IoT version of Windows. I'm not sure exactly what that's called. I believe it is a little bit more generically named. Right. But, um, now everybody has access who owns a Galileo board put Windows on it. Right. So I don't know what it shipped with before. Was it just a, it must've been a Linux variant. I I'm not sure exactly, but it it did come with something. Okay. So this is kind of cool. Like I said, I think we're, we're finally starting to see things sort of uh, come together. So this, this is definitely a space to watch and I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Um, this next one, I thought this was kind of a cool tool. This one's called GUI turn command line programs into GUI applications. Did you take a look at this one? Yeah, I thought this one was really cool. There's a there's a lot of times that I recommend to people, hey, you know, just get out, write something in a, in a command line app. It's really simple. You don't have to worry about, you know, all the overhead of a GUI application. But this kind of takes your simple program and kind of flips it back up to give you an easier way to interact with it. Right. So basically, you you get this. You just grab this horse from GitHub. It's actually written in Python. Uh, but it makes it pretty easy. You just you throw some code in the beginning of this thing to basically configure it. And it tells it, you know, here are the parameters that this console application takes. And it gives you um, an interface, uh, you know, a GUI that, that will accept those parameters. And I think it does some, you know, basic validation. Like if it's asking for um, a certain type, you know, there's like a there's like a drop down option where you can you can pick an option as an example. So you can't, you know, pick something invalid. Um, this is kind of cool. So I think you could just, you know, you could ship this with your console app if you wanted to. Um, otherwise, you know, I'm, I I would like to see a version of this where they use like a a JSON configuration, but, uh, in any case, I I just think it's, this was just a neat idea. I'm surprised nobody had thought of this before. And if they did, I just hadn't seen it. Yeah, this is a cool idea. I, I, all the time I'm I'm telling people just go to command prompt, do these things and, you know, showing my age, I think, because I just always prefer doing things in command line, but this is a, Nice alternative. This is pretty cool. So the next news story here is, uh, I thought this was interesting. I don't know if you guys saw this, how the Napa earthquake affected Bay Area, Bay Area sleepers. So this was actually on the Jawbone blog. So if you're not familiar with uh, Jawbone, I mean, they have they have a whole bunch of different products, but one of them is sort of a Fitbit type device where it will track your sleep and steps and, you know, different uh, metrics about your body. And... They, you know, since all of your uh, data gets pushed up to Jawbone, they were actually able to look at this data in aggregate. And since they know your location, they were able to sort of figure out, you know, they could they could actually see the delay based on how far away from the epicenter you were. So there's a there's a chart. We're, we'll include it in the show notes. If you guys take a look at this chart, though, this is really cool. So you guys see the see the chart in the article. 
Yeah. One of the things I thought was really interesting, I mean, I have a Fitbit one mm -hmm. and it, it does record sleep, but you, you have to manually do that. I know there's other versions and other uh, devices that automatically record the sleep. And this must be one of the ones that do that, do that in order to get such, you know, good uh, data, because I mean, there's just a, a large clear spike in this chart for all of those cities. Yeah. I mean, the, the nice thing about these devices now being internet connected is that they, you know, I'm sure they're doing a time synchronization. So they're, they're all probably synchronized within seconds. And then when that data, even if that data doesn't get pushed up right away, that historical data is still time stamped. But this chart, I mean, it just shows like it's just perfect in how it shows based on the the distance away, the, you know, the actual impact of, of, of that earthquake and, and getting people up. So it was at, um, what was the stat here? So 93% of the upwares in the city suddenly woke up at 3.20 a.m. when the quake struck, which was, uh, that's just, that's just really cool. So yeah, just to get on a little bit of a tangent, Carl, these things, you know, the one thing that frustrates me about the Fitbit is it doesn't track, it tracks sleep, but you have to manually do it. And uh, the jawbone, my understanding is it will automatically figure it out. So I'm guessing it uses a combination of, hey, it's, it's near when people normally go to sleep and he stopped moving for a long time. <laughs> um, I, I still don't understand why the Fitbit doesn't do that. Now you can actually go back in after, uh, after the fact, like I could go back and say, Hey, last Tuesday I, I laid down at 10 PM and it will, you know, it still holds that information and it's all on, it's all on their website and it'll convert it to a sleep record. So I'm not sure why they haven't just, you know, built that into their, their, you know, cloud server offering where it, it just says, Hey, you know, it looks like this is the normal, about the normal time you fall asleep and you stop moving at this time. The other thing I want to see in these devices, like the, the Fitbit is, uh, and again, we're sort of on a tangent, but what I don't understand is why they don't vibrate whenever you've been sitting still too long. You know, if I'm just sitting here for 15 minutes without moving, why doesn't it vibrate and wake me up? I forgot which one it was, but I was listening to a podcast recently where they're explaining, uh, there, there are, there is a model out there that does that. Okay. Maybe it's the jawbone. Maybe it's the newer version of it or something. Okay. Yeah. I, I just don't get that. Cause it, you know, there's times when all of a sudden I, I, I get up and I can tell that I've been sitting on my butt for two hours and we know that that's very bad. But anyway, I think the, the other thing that this, this particular article brought up was sort of rules around data. Um, you know, in, in this case, you know, I, I don't mind if Jawbone or Fitbit has my activity data, um, I guess I could be a little cynical and say, hey, they're going to they're going to give it to, you know, they're going to sell it to the, you know, my doctor or, or actually my insurance company. Right. My insurance company is going to say, oh, you know, you haven't been very uh, active lately. So we're going to we're going to start increasing your insurance rates. Actually, my insurance company offers integration with the Fitbit system okay. and offers discounts on your insurance if you do that. OK, so. There are, there are places out there that do that. Well, that's good. But, you know, I, I, it just brings up the, the data privacy concerns where, where you have this company receiving the data. Um, at, at least at this point, it's an opt-in thing. You know, the, the thing that you, you don't want is when it happens and you're not aware of it. Right, right. Yeah, so, I, you know, and I, I'm okay with it. And, and you know, the, the way I always thought about this data was like, nobody really cares. I mean, whenever you look at this data here, like nobody cares about any specific person. It's always looking at the data in aggregate. So I think that the, the benefits outweigh everything else, especially in the case of this type of data that we're looking at here. 
So what do we got up next here? Oh, this one was interesting. This actually was just announced today as of the time of this recording. It was just a couple hours ago. Uh, new Azure SQL database tiers uh, just went GA and there's also a huge price drop. So 50% off of the previously announced pricing. And just to, just to kind of frame this up, the Azure SQL database is the fully managed hosted option where you um, you know, you just sign up for that. It's, it's basically a database as a service. You don't, you don't grab a machine and install SQL. You just say, give me a SQL database and you get one. And there's a couple different tiers of pricing. So the pricing has actually gone down now that this thing went general availability. Um, and then there's also a newer low end price option. Uh, there's hourly billing. And so you can just fire this thing up for an hour, shut it down. And, uh, you only paid for an hour. I should say delete that database, I suppose. And then it has a, a really high SLA, so it's 99.99. A lot of the services are 99.95. Um, so this one has a a um, a pretty good SLA attached to it. So I thought that was worth mentioning on here. And then this one is even more breaking news. Right before the show, I mean five minutes before we recorded this, I got an email, a fond farewell to the developer ambassador. So Carl, you want to you talk about this one? Because I know you worked with the developer ambassadors a lot. Yeah, so uh, one of them we ha we've had on our show, uh, Lance McCarthy. Mm -hmm. um, what the ambassadors are is that they were a group. They were originally part of uh, Nokia that would just reach out to the developer community for Windows Phone and help anybody who needed it. They would go out and teach people from I've never coded before to I'm really advanced and I'm experiencing this weird bug. They would just go out and help everybody. They'd travel to conferences, they'd give away developer devices, uh, just trying to promote the Windows Phone ecosystem in whatever way that they could. Um, several weeks ago on Twitter, uh, Rich Dunbar, who was uh, the head ambassador, started tweeting, you know, hey, anybody who has a good positive experience, give me your story with a, that includes a developer ambassador. Mm -hmm. And I kind of, at that point, felt that something was going on and apparently today we found out that they're no longer uh you know an official group anymore right right and you said that they were they were contractors previously yes they were during, in this program yeah even when they were at, at nokia they were technically not uh nokia employees so if you got their email address it would be uh ext dash their name at nokia.com and okay. that even pursued into microsoft ext being external Okay. So I just wonder if this is just a shift to full-time employees handling it or just maybe a different type of program going forward. So we really don't have any information other than the, the email saying that that particular program is, is ending. Um, so we wanted to mention that. I would say that I, I suspect the, the developer ambassadors, if they, um, you know, if they were interested at, in, in open positions that, uh, you know, if there's some kind of program replacing this, I'm assuming that they would have a pretty darn good shot at it. So it'd yeah, be interesting uh, to see what this is replaced with. Yeah. For none of them, this this wasn't their full-time gig for any of them. They always right. all of them did this on the side. They um either had other full-time jobs or they had uh other ways of it, of handling income. And they were all really motivated uh members of the community before they became that. So I can I can't imagine that any of them will drop off the face of the earth. Right. Um they'll all still be out there, they'll all be helping people. Just not with the official capacity and weight of Nokia or Microsoft behind them. Yeah. Okay. So we'll just have to we'll just have to wait and see.
So now let's talk to Liam about a technology that I am very excited about, the Azure Search Service. So this was launched five days ago as of the time that this was recorded. And uh, this is this is an exciting service. I know that a lot of people were were wondering if we were going to do something in this space. And uh, I've been waiting for it for a while. So I'm I'm excited to finally see this, you know, uh, in, in public preview. Yeah. So um, you want to give us a little bit of background about, you know, what what is the Azure search service? Just give us a, a quick explanation. Sure. So, so Azure Search is a uh, a fully managed uh, full text search service. It runs in in Azure, and it, it's basically like you, you said, Jason. You know, we've heard for a long time. There's been a lot of uh, feature requests to be able to do full text search. People have their content in stores like uh, SQL Azure, Azure SQL, like you said, table storage, and the lack of full text search has really been hindering a lot of people's ability to build out their applications. So. We really started out from that point and thought, you know, we wanted to have a, a solid full text search experience. And it was interesting as we started drilling into it, what it came down to is that what people wanted was not just full text search, but to be able to build out a, a great search experience uh, for their web applications, their mobile applications, whatever they're building. And as it turns out, there, there's quite a bit to that. It really adds a lot of complexity to a lot of people. And we thought we could take that on make it simple to manage and provide it as a service. Okay. So I'm curious, what were kind of some of the key scenarios that you had in mind whenever you were developing this? Yeah. So, you know, there's a couple, probably three key areas that we, we've been trying to focus on. And as you can imagine, things like e-commerce and retail, um, that's a, that's a tends to be a pretty obvious one for a lot of search because I saw this stat somewhere that said something like 83% of all navigation uh, on an e-commerce site is done through search. So wow. for retailers, you know, being able to have a good search experience is pretty important. And even things like handling spelling mistakes. If someone comes to your your retail site and they misspell a word and you don't show them a product, well, they're just going to go to the next retail site. Um, even things like handling scale. Like in the U.S., we have Black Friday and Cyber Monday. Being able to scale it up, scale it down without any complexity is a pretty attractive feature. So that's the first one. The second one that we see uh, quite often is what we call user-generated content sites. So that could be anything from a, a forum to uh, you know knowledge base articles to you know a reddit.com type place where users are putting in content and you need to have it indexed and searched uh, really really quickly. And you know there's a one one interesting scenario that we we talk to that fits into this is uh, recipe sites. You know, you know, you go to these sites, and what happens is that a lot of these people not only do they need to have that great search experience, but they need to be able to tune it so that they can say, you know, if you're searching for you put in these search terms, and it's in the title of the recipe, that's more important than if you find it in the the comments or some right. other. So being able to tune all of that, but also boost items that are of high business value. Like in a retail scenario, a retailer might want to boost up items that have high margins or have high inventory. So having a deep level of control over that search and the tuning is is pretty important as well. And then the third one, which is kind of interesting, is it's kind of a trend we're seeing, is more internal applications where people are 
are finding that search is a, a natural way for users to interact and explore their data. You know, with things like Bing and Google, users are becoming more accustomed to search um, and the expressions and, and querying it. So if you can tie that to your backend data, a lot of enterprise organizations are finding that search is a, a really great way for people to, you know, search for what they need, but then explore it, like drill into different categories and filter it in a, in a much more natural way. So those are probably three of the main ones we, we target. Wow. That, um, my, my mind is going crazy right now because I, I was sort of thinking a couple different things for each one of those. So th- that's interesting what you're talking about spelling mistakes. That's such a huge problem right now is you go to a site and you have a, if you search and you have a spelling mistake nine times out of 10, it just says no results. And it's super frustrating. So what I end up doing is I actually end up going to Bing and you do, what is it like a site colon and you put the, the URL in and I actually search from something else that's actually a little bit more intelligent. So that's great if you guys are, are able to handle things like that. And then like you mentioned, the, the tuning, um, I hadn't even thought of that being able to, to sort of boost certain things. So that's, uh, that's pretty neat technology. Yeah. I mean, even, even perhaps for you guys, some of the things that we're seeing are, uh, you know, being able to, to take, let's say, a, a podcast. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a lot of really excellent technologies coming out now that would allow you to not only take that, that content and host it on the web, but also transcribe it, extract that text mm-hmm. from it. And imagine, you know, letting your users search, but then not only find information about the, the podcast itself, but also search for spoken words from that podcast and, and, and finding specifically what point in the video it was found. So search is a great way to tie that and yet link it to that, say, video content that might be hosted, say, in Azure Media Services or some other location. That sounds really cool. Thanks. Now, when you're explaining that before you you brought up, you know, you, people would be able to search using this like they would on, you know, Bing or Google or whatever. Um, when I was looking it up, it it was called the simple query syntax. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain a little bit more, you know, what that is? And I guess the follow up question to that immediately that I think of is, I I see simple. Is there any plans to add more complex operators or syntax to that? Yeah, so what we started is, is, and this has kind of been a goal for our team. Um, ultimately, you know, under the, the covers, we are using an, a technology called Elasticsearch, which is an awesome open source technology. Um, but that, but we don't expose all of the Elasticsearch syntax, expressions, all the things around that. One of the things that we have really tried to do is based on those scenarios that, you know, I've talked to and some of the other ones that we've been, focusing on, we've tried to focus and try to direct it so that, you know, the interaction with it and the requirements of things that you need to understand are, you know, hopefully simpler. You know, we have this API layer that's it's still a REST-based API layer. It sits on top of Elasticsearch. But because of that, what we've done is we, we have exposed a bunch of uh, simple query syntax so that if your users are knowledgeable of, of doing things like you know, adding a plus sign or a minus sign or and ors, or even doing things such as wildcards. So search for all the, um, you know, put in a word and then an asterisk after to find all the things that are, you know, wildcard similarities. So really simple queries, expressions such as that is 
is what we have exposed. And that's really based on what we found from these scenarios that we've talked to. Now, certainly over time, because we have a solid foundation uh, to expose as we need to, we can open it up. It's just um, to this point, we haven't had the need to do it. So in order to maintain our level of uh, hopeful, hopefully simplicity, uh, we've, we've started with this point and we can grow as needed. Now, you said that this was based on Elasticsearch, but you've kind of not exposed everything and you've kind of wrapped your own API around that. So as a result, how does it compare to somebody who's might already be familiar with Elasticsearch? Yeah, so so Elasticsearch uh, for us is really ultimately, you know, an implementation deal, detail. It's an excellent technology. It does all the things that we need to do. You know, it provides the inverted index because of based on Lucene. Super excellent from that point. Um, what we what we found is that you know with our API, I I think you'll find that if you're knowledgeable of Elasticsearch and how to interact with it, it's going to be very familiar um, in how you how you interact with our API as well. Now there, there's good things and bad things to it. So the good thing is that we think that we've simplified the interaction a bit based on the scenarios we want to target that we talked to so far. The downside of it is that there are also some really great third-party tools that plug into Elasticsearch. Uh, you know, things that come to mind are things like Logstash and Kibana for log analytics, really great tools. Um, there's some really great .NET uh, integrations such um, as Nest. Um, those don't just work with Azure Search because it's not the same API. So there's downsides to it as well. Um, we've done a lot of work around just securing everything, making it so that the interaction with our service is, you know, fully managed and secure. And um, so that's been a big focus for us. Okay. So let's talk about scale limits. So how, you know, what is, what is sort of the starting point and then how far can I push this thing? So we have two tiers that we offer. So for um, the lower tier, we have a free um, offering. And what this is, is every single customer of Azure has the ability to create up to three free shared indexes. So this is similar type of concept to how SQL Azure works, where it's a multi-tenant environment. It's just a whole bunch of customer indexes on a large set of machines, but you share resources. So very uh, limited in abilities. And in fact, you can only put in up to 10,000 uh, documents or rows into that index. So it's a it's a great starting point to learn the functionality. But more often what we see is what people use is our our dedicated offering. This is where we can create what we call a standard service and it's backed by Azure VMs and storage, which you don't see, but it is dedicated resources for your search. So it, it has a starting point of what we call a single search unit. And that can handle, you know, around 15 queries per second, which is quite a bit for most um, scenarios. It can handle around 15 million documents and 25 gigabytes of, of index storage. But then what you can do is you can just simply move the dial in the Azure portal, move it up and down. So if you want to add more um, copies or more uh, replicas of your index, you just move that up and we'll copy it over multiple indexes to load balanced requests to get more queries per second. If you want to load in more documents, let's say you need to load in more than 15 million documents, you just simply move up the what we call partition 
um, dial, and then what we'll do is we'll split up your index automatically for you across multiple machines, multiple dedicated machines to you, uh, but because it's split up over multiple machines, we can handle more documents and more storage, so we can scale up quite high depending on what the scenario might be. Now, you've brought up a little bit of terminology I thought we might want to just define. You mentioned partitions, and mm -hmm. I've also seen, you know, you've brought up indexes, and I've seen search units as well. So can you just explain a little bit what those are and, you know, how they make sense in this, you know, this search thing for the average developer? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Carl, because, you know, there are some interesting topics around this that, you know, it's important to kind of understand as an administrator for your, your search. So the the search unit is a concept that basically you can map to a machine, you know, an Azure VM allocated to your resources, and you pay per search unit. So for our public preview pricing, which we're at right now, is $125 per month per search unit. Um, but then you scale it up depending on how many search units or how many machines you have. So uh, when you when I, when you scale it up, you can scale it up in two ways. It, the replicas was the one thing that you brought up, and that's where it actually makes a physical copy of your index on another machine. So if you have three replicas, that means it's on three copies of that index on three different machines. Of course, that is uh, you know also would be three search units. Now, the idea of partitions is not copies of the index, but it's actually taking those indexes and splitting it up, you know, chunking it up into chunks over different machines. And when you have, you know, a smaller chunk, that means that you can, you know, obviously have more resources and more documents. And the way that you, the customers will calculate is, you know, however many replicas you have times the number of partitions is the total number of machines or search units. So that's our calculation. Um, you know, I we do understand it's still somewhat of a complicated topic um, that we, you know, we're trying to simplify as much as possible. Um, but the other concept that you mentioned is indexes. And you can think of, if you're familiar with SQL, it's almost like a table. This is the, the index is the place that you store your information. It adds fields or columns. Um, it has documents or in SQL you call it rows and that's where you actually physically store your content that you're going to have searched. Now you brought up pricing with that first one you said it's roughly $125 per search unit so mm -hmm. I, I, I take it this isn't meant for us to like throw on our personal blog and and use from there. You know, based upon the pricing is that kind of helping dictate who should be using this? Yeah, and I, I think it really comes down to a, a matter of time more than anything. Um, we wanted to, to get the service out as quickly as possible and kind of gauge um, the level of interest from the different areas. And, Carol, I, I completely agree with you. I mean, if you're just, a, you, know, a, a, you know, a smartphone app developer, um, it may, it's likely going to be overly expensive for you to, to use this type of system for that. Um, small startups, perhaps also quite expensive. And we've also heard, we've already heard feedback that the jump from free to even that 125, uh, public preview pricing is a pretty big jump. So we are definitely looking at and considering having something, you know, somewhere in the middle. I'm not sure where that would be. Um, but something that, you know, perhaps would have less, 
less um, resources. So maybe rather than 15 queries per second, maybe it only does a single query per second or a couple queries per second. Rather than 50 million documents, maybe you might be more than fine with a couple hundred thousand documents. So we think that we can offer something in that, but we're, we're really just kind of waiting from the public preview um, for the feedback on that. And to be on, on completely upfront with you on that, we have heard that there is an interest for that. So I wouldn't be surprised if you'll see something in, in that lower end uh, okay. in the future. Well, let's dive into that a little bit. So how so how far will it, will the free instance get you? What were the what were the limits on that? So that's ten thousand documents. Okay. Uh, and there's no it's not dedicated resources. So you there's no guaranteed numbers around the numbers of queries per second that you would get. Right. Um, most often we have found that this is a great sandbox environment for developers to just play around with, um, test it out. Now certainly. Um, there are certain scenarios where that's going to be more than fine uh, to be able to handle that. Uh, but that's not really the target of the free scenario. Okay. Because I was thinking, you know, like your standard blog or even our podcast or, you know, just a, a lot of sites, it, it seems like the free option would actually be decent for, for those types of scenarios. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's kind of a learning. I mean, it, it really, a lot of it came down to a timing for us. We wanted to get this service into the customer's hands as, as soon as possible. Um, and we wanted to start out with, you know, these two price points and kind of gauge where it made most sense for us to focus. And, um, yeah, I, I do agree with you, Jason. I think that there is likely going to be a need for something um, closer to that level as well. Okay. And then what people don't realize on the, you know, if you buy the, the single search unit and you're, you're talking 15 searches per second, um, you know, some people in their head sort of say, oh, that's, you know, one, one user or 15 simultaneous users, but that's absolutely not the case. I mean, you could have a thousand people using a site and you really have to look at how often do they search and, you know, how many of them actually do search, you know, you could for every thousand users, 15 per second could be way overkill too. So, I mean, this, this could actually right off the bat at 125 bucks, that that's pretty impressive scale. Yeah, it, you're, you're right, Jason. It's a, it's a good point on that because, like you said, it's it's 15 queries per second, and that adds up to, I think it's something like 6 million um, queries or searches per day, which right. <laughs> most uh, most customers, that's, that's a pretty big number yeah. uh, to get that in a single day. Um, so, And the other point of this is that this 15 queries per second is not a hard limit. You know, just like with databases, no one query is the same. Some are more complicated, some are... You know, very simple. So all we can say is that for an average query, that's what you see. We might see some customers that can get into, you know, much, much higher, maybe, you know, 40, 50, 60 queries per second on these machines. But then again, some customers may have really complicated queries that would really bring it down into maybe the the lower single digit numbers. Okay. So is there a way to monitor that? And, you know, like what happens whenever you start running up against that limit? Yeah, so what, what happens is that, well, a great way to do that is actually from our, our portal in, in Azure. So the, in the new preview portal, which is HTTPS portal.azure.com, you can go up and set up this search service and we're adding in monitoring capabilities. So not only can you be able to track, um, the, um, usage, like the storage that you have, the number of documents, but we're also adding in, um, the ability to actually track um, things such as latency, 
latency is a really good way of not only telling, you know, how many queries per second you're getting, but also, you know, if it's starting to take longer and longer for you to get those responses back to your user, mm -hmm. that's often a good sign that it's a, a time to add maybe in another copy or another replica. Okay. Uh, so you, we have APIs that you can do to, to get this type of information. And then um, in one of the next updates to the portal, you'll actually be able to see it visually as well. Okay. So how do we, now let's get into how we actually configure this with a website or an application. So, you know, how, what does that integration actually look like? I know we've been mentioning APIs, but what does this thing actually look like? So the you, yeah, so the service itself is um, an API endpoint. You interact with it using uh, REST-based APIs. It's a OData v4 centric REST-based API. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you're familiar with OData, you know this will be very familiar as well. But the actual payload that you send to the service and that you get back is in a JSON format. So for example, if you wanted to create your index, uh, you define that index schema in a JSON document, you send that to us along with your authentication credentials, and we create it and send back the response. Similarly, if you query that service, all the content that we send back to you is in a JSON structure. So then you as a developer receive that JSON document, you parse it, and then display the results in your web page. Okay. Um, what is the, what are some of the things that you can actually search with this? What are some of the things? Oh, yeah. So what, like, what are the types of things that you can search? I know we talked about, you know, you talked about the text from a podcast. I mean, is it, is it just full text? Is there, is there other types of information that you can actually index? Yeah. So, I mean, cer certainly anything textual, um, mm -hmm. is a great candidate for being able to do full text search over. Um, another thing that we really, uh, find a lot of people using is not only the the full text search, but also the geospatial search. So, for example, let's say that you're you know you're building the next Yelp.com and you wanted to find all the restaurants that are within um, you know say 10, 10 kilometers of yourself, or maybe you want to say show me all of the points of interest within this city, so within this boundary of areas. So one of the things that search is really strong at is if you have content, if you have documents that have some sort of um, coordinate, some longitude and latitude, mm -hmm. you can do some really interesting searches with that. And in fact, we, we also find that to be critical in the tuning. So imagine um, you were a company and you had some location information for your documents. What you might want to do is boost up or give more weighting to documents that are in close proximity to the user that's actually executing the query. So once again, you know, go back to Yelp.com. Find me all the restaurants that are close to me. You can actually take that user's location and boost up those items or boost up those restaurants that are close to the user. And okay. then if that user goes to a different location, does the exact same search, he's going to get very likely a very different set of responses. Very cool, because that's the type of thing that that I don't want to handle. That's great that you're handling that as part of the service. Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, so as far as getting information in, um, I looked and I noticed, you know, you actually have to, to populate the, you have to build an index and you have to build up the catalog. Are there any plans to build some crawlers to make it, you know, dead simple to get data into Azure search? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, certainly I, 
I would say from our, our feedback that that is at the top of the list for a lot of people, um, okay. is to be able to have crawlers for different sources. Some of the common ones are, um, Azure stores, um, on-premise systems like SQL Server, um, being able to just index content like PDFs and PowerPoints and, you know, other documents and HTML pages. Crawlers are a convenient way for doing that. Now, the reasoning for why we didn't prioritize this is because what we found is that although crawlers are a very convenient way um, for creating your index, you know, quickly, one, what we find is that for most customers, it's not something that works for them in production. Like imagine, you know, that retail scenario where on Cyber Monday or Black Friday, they have a really busy time and they're constantly updating the sales price in the inventory in their main database. You need to have that information reflected into the search index pretty much instantaneously. So as it's happening. Because you don't want to have your customers searching for products that you don't have inventory on uh, or is showing a lot wrong price from the search results. So what we found is that although the crawlers are attractive, the fact that they're only occasional, they only periodically check for changes, it makes it so that it's unusable for most production systems. So what most people prefer to do is rather push it to us. So as they make a change to their main store, they also push that change that needs to be searchable to us at the exact same time. And that makes it searchable at a much quicker uh, rate as opposed to using crawlers. Now, that's not to say that crawlers aren't important. I mean, there's lots of scenarios where, you know, it's okay if it's it takes a few minutes for it to be uh, updated in the search index. And the convenience of a crawler uh, definitely makes that a, a viable option. Right. So have you thought about having... You know, I, I keep thinking about having an ecosystem around this where, you know, I have different types of things that need to get get crawled. And I'm sure that people are going to run into similar things. Mm-hmm. So have you thought about, you know, I guess there's nothing keeping me from doing this, but I want to hear your thoughts on it. You know, I, I have a, a certain type of data that I want to crawl. So I'm going to write some code for that, maybe throw it up on GitHub and make it easy for people to go grab that code and, and index the same type of data. Yeah, you know, we've been really uh, fortunate through our private preview that we've had um, a lot of really um, helpful partners that have already started to build up some of that community for us. Okay. Example, um, where's um, Real Dolman um, has created this. They've actually created two tools. Uh, One is an administration tool. It's a UI where rather than going in and actually doing some coding to create your index, they have a whole user interface that allows you to, as administrator, visually create the index, visually apply that scoring. And then they even have a tool that can import data from a CSV right into your index without doing any coding at all. Um, now, it was great that they did that because it really takes off over from the point that we've left off in our Azure search or Azure portal so that you can continue to doing that. Now, over time, we'll do that, but it's a great addition. They actually also have in GitHub um, a .NET control um, that allows you to interact with the service. And, you know, another company that comes to mind is TwigKit. Um, they have these um, amazing UX controls. It's basically drag and drop so that if you want to do best practices for, you know, a search box or mapping controls, they have direct in 
integration with Azure Search so that without any coding, you can drag and drop controls onto your website. So we've been pretty fortunate and we're hoping that it'll continue to grow from this point. That's very cool. Mm -hmm. Now, is there a way, if not currently, but in the future to run this on premises? So, yeah, let me talk about that for a minute. I, um, I'm going to say it's very unlikely that we will offer this as an on-premise solution. And here's the, the reason why. Um, we think most of our value um, as a past service, as a, an Azure service, comes from the fact that we're, we're taking away all of the management um, complexities that come with running these types of systems. As I've mentioned before, systems like Elasticsearch, Solar, all built on Lucene, are really great technologies. Um, they're very easy to get up and running quickly, um, but as you start adding in scale, you know, it, it does often get a little bit more complicated. And that's one of the things that we're trying to do in providing this as a, as a fully managed service. The other thing that we're, we believe that we can do as having this as an Azure service is that we can start tying in some of the interesting things that happen that are being in, in the works in, in, in Microsoft. Like for example, Bing, you can imagine there's a, a lot of really great technologies that we can bring into play. We haven't yet, uh, but we will be looking to do in the near future. Like for example, um, synonyms. As you can imagine, Bing has this mm -hmm. list of synonyms so that you could potentially just say, you know, just add in Bing synonyms. And then whenever a user searches for the word shoes, but in your content it's called footwear, it can still find results. Um, you know, there's this whole, you know, mapping or doing reverse geocoding, having that integrated right into search, you know, recommendations engines. Even the office team has a, a really excellent uh, multi-language, natural language processor that we can tie in. So post V1, and you know, really through our goal for V1 is to try to provide this service as a really great search experience that we manage for you. But past that, um, past V1, we think that our primary goal is really adding in the value, bringing in all those assets that general administrators and developers just don't have access to, and we can provide that on service. Once again, those are things that we couldn't provide if we just provide this as an on-premise solution. So it, it would ultimately become, it wouldn't give you a lot of value over just say using something like Elasticsearch on-premise. Right. Yeah. The, the point that I always try to make to people as well is that, you know, even if they have an existing application or even on-prem website, whatever, you can integrate a lot of these Azure services. There's, there's sort of the, you know, there, you can run a VM up in, in Azure, but there's all these, these services that sort of lay in the middle, like service bus and now Azure search DocDB, some of these new things where you can actually utilize those from on-prem. Um, you know, you have to be there. There's probably some gotchas whenever you do that, but for something like search, I would, I would feel comfortable in many applications sort of, you know, just using, have, you know, that works whenever there's an internet connection, I'll just go out and use that powerful service. Yeah, I, I think you're right on that, Jason. I, you know, the thing about it is that it is a nice slow transition to the cloud if that's what your organization is doing. If you can, you know, take a certain portion of your workload and maybe move that up to the cloud and search is a viable one for that. But the other thing that we see is that, you know, sometimes on premise, let's say that you're use, you're doing full text search and some people might be using it in their main database, say in their SQL server database. So 
oftentimes search has a big, um, you know, performance impact. It has a big, it's a big part of that workload on your system. So if you can completely move that out, say, take, I'm going to take my full text search and just redirect that to um, Azure search uh, in the cloud. And then that offloads all of the other contentions that might be happening with accessing the database and just maybe even reduce the amount of um, processing power you need even on premise. But it doesn't mean you have to migrate to the cloud. You can just take a small piece of it and then slowly transition it. And you know, exactly. I think that's attractive migration for some people. Definitely, definitely. So I'm kind of curious, just I'm just sort of thinking out loud here, if you have if you're using this as your primary search, but you still have customers that have to be completely disconnected for whatever reason, um, what is the closest on-premise um, analog? Would that be something like Elasticsearch, where you could you could tie into both of these fairly easily, or is that is that still pretty difficult? Um, yeah. So so if I'm understanding you right, you're saying you know if if you don't have connectivity, but you need to, still need to be able to access that mm -hmm. uh, search, right? Yeah, I think so. For us in particular, I would say it would be Elasticsearch primarily because, you know, we use Elasticsearch at the core and, you know, our APIs do have some close similarities to it. Um, but I guess the the whole question would be how do you actually keep those in sync? Um, and I don't think that there's a good answer for that. Right, right. Okay. Um, so if we if people want to get started with this, what is, um, you know, what is the best way to actually get started using this service? So what I would recommend is um, if you already have an Azure subscription or if you don't, go to azure.com, either sign up for a subscription or if you already have one, go to this new portal, httpsportal.azure.com. Um, you can create the service. Um, highly recommend starting out with one of those free services. Um, try it out. Make sure it makes sense for you. And then if you go to the MSDN um, site, you'll see there's a lot of documentation, our API guides, as well as some getting started samples that you can start out with. Okay. There was a blog post yesterday too. Did you see this one? It was called uh, Making Azure Blob Storage Searchable Using Azure Search Service. Did you see that? I did. That was really great. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll include that in the show notes, but it's got, I just thought it was kind of interesting because it's just showing how you can, you know, take an existing service like blobs where, where you you know, they're, they're pretty rigid in how you retrieve them. You have to, for the most part, know what you're looking for, but this just layers right on top of that and includes all of the code in here. Uh, so I thought this was a great blog post and I think it really gives a good feel for, you know, how simple it is to, to integrate in. Cause most of the code in here is, uh, most of it is actually just setting up that, um, um, that index, you know, saying here are the fields that I'm interested in the types and the weights and those types of things. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, there's been some really great uh, blog posts on this already. I'm one of the, actually one of the engineers on our team just put out a blog post on, you know, using Python to access the search service as well. It was like 100 lines of code, completely redid some of the samples we had in very few lines of code, um, which was a, a nice addition as well. Okay. Um, one question I'm asking sort of on behalf of a partner, because they always ask me this, they're a, they're a Java shop. Are there mm -hmm. any plans for a Java client? Um, yeah, so uh, what we're doing is we're, we're going to be starting out looking at the Azure SDK. So all of the, the main, you know, technologies that, um, you know, the, that SDK supports. So that's the starting point. Um, certainly we'll grow it based on demand from that point. Um, but that's going to be our starting point. Okay. Any other 
future plans that you can disclose? I know this is a little bit early yet, but uh, anything we can look forward to that you can talk about? Yeah, I think that really the most interesting things that are come into some of these interesting little um, technologies that we, we see from Bing. I, I mentioned a couple such as those synonyms, um, you know, the multi-language support. Um, we're going to really enhance the suggestions so that as people are typing uh, into that search box, we're, we're trying to make it magical so that your users that when they type into that search box, it just gives them responses uh, quickly and gets them um, access to that, what they're looking for in, a, in an efficient way. Yeah, that was one thing we didn't talk about. There is um, autocomplete support I noticed in here. So as you're typing, you can be grabbing results. Yeah, that, that's right. And I think we have a, an okay starting point from that. I mean, mm -hmm. what you can do is you can say, um, here are the fields that I want you to do um, auto suggest over. Um, and we can do that. But I think there's some more interesting things that we can do on top of that. And there's some interesting machine learning techniques from Bing that have been grown over time that we're hoping to see if we can leverage in the near future as well. Exactly, exactly. So are there any other questions that we should have asked, but we didn't ask? I don't think so. I think you guys <laughs> were pretty thorough. Was excellent. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm really excited about this service. I, I think that, you know, a lot of people, they, they build something and, and search isn't always a first class feature. And uh -huh. usually it gets thrown in, at least based on my experience, it sort of gets thrown in at the last minute. And I think this is powerful because it doesn't take it from, from what I've seen, I don't think it takes a long time to, to integrate it. Um, you know, there is a little bit of work, um, you know, thought process and, in, 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 in getting started, but I think it's pretty easy for somebody to get hooked into this and then take the, the result of these searches and display it, you know, in a really nice format. And then as this search service gets better, and then also as the developers um, with the content that's getting searched, as they start to, um, you know, look at those search results and say, hey, I, we can start to tune this and make this better. I think you'll get them hooked. And then the search in, in whatever application you're building is just going to get better over time. So that that's really exciting to me. Yeah, I, I agree. That, that, that's a really good point. And I, I think that's, you know, that's been one of the goals is that, you know, it, it's easy to start out with search. It's easy to get, you know, a, a simple full text search system in place. And we see that from a lot of the websites, you know, they have that full text search there, but there's so many things that are missing. So if we can provide it to administrators in an easy way so that if they can just automatically get spelling correction, if they can automatically easily tune it without a lot of complex coding, I think they'll use it. And then that just makes the user experience for your customers that much better too. Okay, excellent. Uh, Carl, what's the app of the week? This week's app of the week is Spotify. And the big reason why I chose this one this week is now it's no longer just a paid app. Before you had to pay for it in order to access the musical content on there, but now there's a free version on, on there as well. That brings it in line with the offerings that it already has for iOS and Android. Um, in particular, the free mode will let you play an artist, an album, or a playlist on shuffle mode. Um, it does insert a little bit of advertising in there, but uh, it's a pretty big musical service to offer a free tier to their services. So explain this to me. How, how does this relate to Pandora? Because I know Pandora, you don't get much choice. Does this do you start with the artist and it sort of jumps around or will it stay on that particular artist? Um, by the way that it looks, it'll, it looks like it'll stay on that artist 
because the description says play any artist album or playlist on shuffle mode. Okay. Yeah. And I see right here, Spotify premium features. That's where you can remove the ad. So it looks like this is primarily ad supported. So that's, that's interesting. I'm gonna have to check this out. I pay for, uh, what's this? Um, beats music. The only reason that I, that I chose beats over something else was that they have the the deal with AT&T where you can get it. Uh, what is it? It's $15 and it works for up to five lines in your account. So a service like this, like Spotify, I think it's like, you know, the premium is like 10 bucks a, a user. And uh, we have, we actually have five people on my account that, that all use it. So it would be, it's $15 versus 50. So that's the only yeah. reason I use beats, but Spotify is really cool. Yeah. I know a lot of people like that and it's fairly popular service. And it's just, like I said, great that they're supporting the windows phone platform with their free tier as well. Yeah. I'd love to see something like Xbox music or Spotify, make a deal with, with AT&T just like beats did. Cause beats the, the app is it's, it's pretty good. It's pretty good now on, on windows phone. It's actually, it's actually a pretty impressive windows phone app, but it's uh it's also a pretty heavy app, but uh, it, it gets the job done. Yeah. Um, and then you have the promo from last week. So you want to give us an update? Sure. So, uh, we have two winners Uh, as a recap. Um, anybody who retweets any one of our tweets, um, gets a $5 gift card us only. It's entered in to win is entered in. Yes. (laughs) You you leave, you leave that out. We're going to be in trouble. Yes. And, um, the two winners from last week are Chris Bohatka and Dan Kassinjar. Uh, excuse me if I murdered your names, but, um, uh, please either email us at feedback at msdevshow.com or uh, DM us your email address, and I'll uh, get those digital cards to you as soon as I get that. Um, cool. As well, a reminder, you could, uh, could you just DM them the code? Maybe you have you have to be mutually following each other, I believe. Oh, okay. Oh, that's right. The rules around that changed. Okay. Yeah. So it might be easier just to email that. If okay. not, just contact us. We'll figure it out. Okay. And as a reminder, um, I do have a total of 10 of these cards, so this will be continuing on for the next four episodes as well. So continue on, just tweet any one of our tweets. Um, I did, our most retweeted one was to say, last week said, retweet this for a $5 gift card. Um, It doesn't have to be that one. Any one of our tweets throughout the week are eligible to be entered in. Yeah, preferably, uh, you know, a show announcement or something like that. We're just trying to get the word out, trying to... um get people to, to know about the show. Okay. Um, so how Liam, how can people find you? So, um, you can either, um, go through Twitter. My, my Twitter account is a uh, Liam CA L I C A. Um, or I have a, a, a blog. You can, um, go to, um, a blog that le- liamcavanaugh.com or if you want to just email me you can email me directly my, i'm liamca l-i-a-m-c-a at microsoft.com excellent so we'll include those in the show notes for everybody if you have feedback for the show you can email us at feedback at msdevshow.com uh, make sure you subscribe to the podcast by searching for ms dev show in your favorite podcasting app uh, for example stitcher um carl how can they find you you can be, find me at wpdevguy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. Okay. And you can find me at ytechie.com or on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. And Liam, thank you so much for coming on. This service is, uh, it's really amazing. You should be uh, proud of this. It's really cool. I think everybody should use it. Oh, thanks, Jason. And thanks for having me and Carl, you as well. Thank you very much.